Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the podcast, The YBR Remo Show. The episode today is a simulcast episode. I was actually interviewed by a couple of folks, Taylor Steele and Austin Carroll. These gentlemen are with Integrated Equities, and they brought me on the show to talk a little bit about, well, a lot of things, uh, interest rates and what's going on, some suggestions as to where things are going, uh, where my mindset is on the current rate environment, and so much more. There was a lot of good conversation in this episode, and I think you'll enjoy it. So if you're loving it, make sure to check out these guys on YouTube, but more importantly, give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, and share the podcast so we can help out more people. We'll see you guys on the other side. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. 2022, a lot of the real estate conversations have been around rising interest rates. Where are they going and how long will they stay there? Today, we have Rockstar Mortgage Broker Alex McFadian on the show to explain how investors can navigate this environment and best position their real estate portfolio. Alex is a business owner, a real estate investor, and most famously, a dog dad to his pugs. And joining us as well today, we have Chewy. Yes. Yes, I'll, I'll get him back in the frame here later into the podcast. He just settled in for a nap again. So if I bothered awesome. him a second time, he might not be a happy camper. So Alex, you know, there's no secret. Interest rates have been rising at a rapid rate uh, over the last year. Um, where do you see and where do you forecast rates heading here within the next year? Oh, you know, Taylor, thank you so much. First and foremost, um, the conversation around forecasting interest rates, as you know, like forecasting anything, in my opinion, can sometimes be a fool's game because the nature of our market is one in which things change almost daily. It's almost a daily basis where we get new information or new news where something will happen that will impact the direction of where we even believe that possibly rates will go. But to answer your question, which I hope to do today, I think the reality is we can follow we can follow the people that are paid to predict. Let's let's uh, let's talk about the people who are paid to predict, unlike myself. The vast majority of most economists, at least as of last week, this would be mid-November if I have to date this, was that essentially we're not at the top yet as it pertains to, assuming you're talking about predominantly uh, the Bank of Canada's overnight rate. Um, and if we are, is that we're not at the top yet. And uh, and then the, the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, I should say, has a he's got a little bit of work ahead of him. Uh, definitely even more as of last week's announcement about uh, the government giving away more money. In regards to interest rates on the variable rate side, uh, general rule of thumb is that we're likely to see an increase of somewhere between, I know there's a gap here, but about a quarter to three quarters of a percent. So that puts us at, of course, record highs over the course of the last 20 years now. But we're close to the top. We're very close to the top, which is positive. It is very positive. And there's a lot of good news there for most people that are either in the housing market or they've lost cash flow on their rentals or their personal residence or anything of that nature. Um, some good news that we've seen and, and actually almost comical, you know, the US, of course, made their uh, CPI announcements uh, a few weeks ago, and we saw uh, positivity because, well, their, uh, their their inflation numbers were the lowest since January, which were still record highs at 7.8%. And the market reacted almost instantly to the point that they saw interest rates uh, bounce uh, or sorry, be reduced down there. 
Um, we actually saw the bond market in Canada react very similarly, where, uh, believe it or not, over the weekend, we saw uh, some lenders offering even the most slight discount on their five-year fixed products. So there is some positivity, but to answer your question, chances are quite good that at least on the variable rate side, they go up and stay sticky for at least a year at this point right now, if not more, depending on what happens economically worldwide. And then, of course, uh, on the fixed rate front, really going to be a lot to, sorry, there's going to be a lot to look at over the course of the next three to four months here. Uh, but we'd suggest that fixed rates will probably stay sticky again for at least another uh, year, perhaps more. Yeah, everybody wants that crystal ball. They want to know exactly where they're going and when they are going. And we talked a little bit before we jumped on here about some of the graphs uh, and charts that you provide um, you know, to the public and your clients. Are there some specific graphs and charts that you use and look at um, when trying to predict where these rates are moving? I mean, I think I've got a couple of answers there for you. Thanks for the question, Austin. Appreciate yeah. that. Um, so the question, there's there's two sides to that question, I, I think, and, and two thought processes that I would like to answer that with. The first and foremost is when we're looking at graphs and charts, uh, which rates are we trying to predict? Are we looking at prime or the bank's prime, so to speak, um, or are we looking at fixed interest rates? And are we, are we analyzing today or are we analyzing go, uh, forward? Now, obviously, the tried and true for fixed rates, at least the five years, the five-year bond yield and the bond spread. Looking back at what's happened over the course of the last six months, that hasn't always been a true indicator of where rates are at. But to answer your question, that is one of the charts people can look at. The reason that doesn't that isn't always as simple as as hey the bond uh, you know yields have dropped you know we see a spread of let's call it one point instead of a half point. The reason that's not always an indicator is because there are other factors at play which impact the cost of borrowing and the cost of money. And then there's also the consideration of confidence from the lender's perspective. So, so we saw the, the market react uh, positively in our mind over the last week and drop 50 points overnight, one of the biggest drops that we've seen in years. Um, but fixed rates didn't drop to follow along with that. And that has a lot to do with confidence of where the market's going and the lenders essentially uh, holding their profits such as they are right now because they're concerned things could come back in a negative manner as well. I don't know if that's a direct answer to your question, but that's one thing people can watch. Uh, and one p thing people can consider. Um, I also know my lane, so to speak. Uh, and I, I understand, obviously, what impacts interest rates. But I also want to leave some of this to the experts. And I do get a lot of data that helps to educate and even explain myself uh, where the market's moving as it pertains to inflation, where the market's moving as it pertains to uh, the two-year uh, overnight, as as the market is moving in, in, in a variety of different, I'm going and babbling here, but a variety of different uh, areas. And I try to use the data that they're providing as well to provide the information to my clients. Um, I guess that answers your questions partially. Austin was able to address that. Yeah, definitely. I think it's always important. Um, you know, people always say, don't, don't just ask, go and find out that information for yourself. Um, so I think some little tidbits there to, uh, to go and do that, um, on the client's end is, is very helpful. So I appreciate that. Yeah. There's a few other places that we go and we do provide some of this insight to our clients, but even the educated investor, for the most part, wants us to actually explain and break down what's happening and not necessarily look at graphs. The vast majority of our, our client base, and a lot of them are, are very educated, uh, don't necessarily want me to send them a chart and say, here's what's happening. They want me right. to just explain, how does this impact me? And what should I do going forward? So I think what's more important isn't necessarily where are you getting the information from? I, obviously, that is exceptionally important. But uh, what does it mean to me? 
that's a great point there and and then leads right into the next question which is you know if you are on a variable rate mortgage whether you're you're a homeowner or an investor how have these increases from a variable rate mortgage perspective how have they impacted people uh what does that look like yeah so if we're talking about people i assume we're talking about current uh, property owners and current mortgage Correct. owners so, I mean, I think there's two different ways that this has impacted people. It depends on what type of variable rate they have. As you know, there's there's two different ones. One which is adjustable. As the Bank of Canada raises or lowers interest rates, your payment goes up or down to make sure that it matches your amortization schedule. So you're paying it off in 25 years or, or 20 years. And the other is where the payment remains static until what's happened recently, such time where you're no longer paying off any principal. So with that first adjustable crowd, they've been seeing increases to the tune of anywhere between $13 to $15 for every $100,000 borrowed for every quarter percent. That's a lot to take away here. So every quarter percent increase equals essentially $13 to $15. Now, the reason that's a little bit higher is because as rates go up, obviously, the amount that you pay goes up a little bit more too. But back to my initial point, those people have been receiving uh, payment increases for the better part of six months now. With, with people that are are starting to see or feel some concern are those who have been on the uh, static payments where the payments have remained the same. Now they're getting contacted by their banks to say, "Hey guys, you have to make a change here. You either have to you know lock in, or you have to increase your payments, or you have to do lump sum." And some of that's not necessarily true. And this is where people need to be talking to someone to explain and educate them on what their options are. And when you are talking to someone or educating about their options, you know, in the past, uh, you know, last year, I purchased a, a property and my mortgage broker advised me to go, you know, variable as they've sometimes outperformed um, over the course of time. Uh, I knew what my payments would be directly with a fix. So I went with that. Um, when you are talking to investors, are you advocating towards fixed or variable? Um, you know, is that case by case? And currently, you know, has your mindset changed regarding those two? Yeah, let's circle back to the first point. You're in a variable rate mortgage today. And if you're one of those people that has the static payment variable or just either or, if you have static payment, I think the first thing we didn't really touch on this in the last point is you have options available to you. So if you have that payment that doesn't change, contrary to what most banks will tell you over the phone or via email, you do have options. You can you can provide min small lump, lump sums, like minimal lump sums if you want to. You can just increase your payments. Although, quick hack, if you are someone hoping to invest, into real estate, your debt ratio, so essentially the amount that you can borrow, uh, will be negatively impacted if you increase your payments. So what we always try to remind people is to consider the possibility of doing lump sums, even if it's $500 a payment or $200 a payment. What this does is it holds your payment as it is. It helps you out because you're still paying down the principal, so it gets the bank off your back. Your back. You don't have to flip into a fixed rate where your payment's going to automatically go up by 30% or 40% or 50% overnight. And it ensures that you're you're able to purchase those other properties. A lot of people don't realize that, so that's something I really want to touch on. Back to your uh, your other point, how do you how do you pick a mortgage product and has it impacted? I mean, shoot, if we could go back in 2021 and take a a three year fixed or a two year fixed or a four year fixed at 1.69 percent, would it have been something to consider? Perhaps. Um, you know, they always say that history is not necessarily the always always the best. Um, I don't know what the word is, I'm going to butcher it, but the best guide of future success. But right. you, you know where I'm going with that. Um, the point is, yeah, I mean, there are some people that would re reconsider their options, but I think there's still some things that always remain true. And I, you've heard this before because you guys are well-educated and versed on lending, but perhaps the listener may not have heard this the first time. It comes down to your personal strategy and plan. I'm in variable rates on all my properties, all of them. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I could look back and say, well, <laughs> I could have got that one locked in at 1.8% or 1.9%. And it could kick myself in the butt. And in some cases, I've felt like that before. But the reality is, I have to think back at what was my decision based, my decision based on at that time. And someone getting into a loan today needs to still have that same mindset. What's the likelihood that I could make a change that will impact my mortgage over the course of that term? One, two, three, four, five, seven, ten years, right? If it's like, hey, I'm going to retire tomorrow. And after I get the mortgage, I don't want to think about this thing for 10 years, then maybe that person's going to go in for the longer term fix because they're not touching the mortgage. They're not going to sell it. They're going to leave it. And they just want things to coast. And if that's the case, perhaps that might make sense for you. But that's not most people, at least not most people that I talk to on a regular basis. Most people don't even know they're going to make a change to their mortgage. You know, uh, think about this way. You know, I bought a property in one of my properties about 2000 and, and uh, I guess it was a pre-sale. I closed in 2019. And at that time, obviously, if you guys remember, rates were at high threes and, and low fours. And in some cases, mid fours for a rental property. I locked in at the high threes at, at uh, a three-year term. Well, of course, 2020 hit, rates dropped like a rock. And then, you know, by the end of 2020, I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to restructure mine. Well, I had a $20,000 payout penalty on a $400,000 loan that could really set you back in terms of your overall cost if you're looking to save money, which nullified my potential savings in that situation. So so uh, I, I, could have, I um, uh, could have saved a lot of money. I could have restructured and I could have been able to take out more equity on that particular property, but I was left in a little bit of a predicament where I would have had to pay $20,000. The reason for that, guys, is because I locked into an unflexible term, an unflexible mortgage, one where there was a big penalty. So back to your question, what are we advising people right now? Again, Austin, it depends on your situation, your timeline. If you want more flexibility, you take a shorter term, you consider a variable rate if you're the type of person that's comfortable with the potential bumps and bruises, right? If you want less certainty, you go longer term. And I think that's, uh, I should be, uh, general guidelines for most people. Lender type obviously plays a role having a home equity line of credit, these things play a role as well. But I think that is, uh, I guess, answering your question. You you talk about having a strategy, having a game plan. Um, you know, you see first time home buyers and, and that's a huge component of their, their strategies, putting together their game plan, getting all the puzzle pieces together, working with a good realtor, a good mortgage broker, getting pre-approved and now another rate increase. You know, what is what does this process look like for first time home buyers and, and how has these increases continue to impact their ability to get into the market? Well, I mean, I think I have a couple of answers to you. First and foremost, we've seen the maximum qualification go down and it has impacted first-time buyers more than anyone. There's no doubt about that, right? Uh, specifically single uh, income earners. That's the market that's been uh, negatively impacted the most. Uh, we've seen their qualifications be reduced at maximum by anywhere between about 18 to 20%. It depends on the nature of how much down payment they have, where they're buying, what type of property, and so forth. But it's it's obviously impacted them. And what's interesting, Taylor, back to your point, we and we can touch on this in a little bit, is that that market, that entry-level market, is interestingly enough, the one that has not really come down uh, the way that we would have hoped. And well, I should say a first-time buyer would have hoped. Um, and uh, certainly not the way that we've seen you know, the single-family detached or the million-plus property uh, come, back, come back down. So... You know, I think when it comes to first-time buyers, what should their plan be? I think their plan should be, be to be prepared, first and foremost. Um, I think that uh, if I had the opportunity and I was a first-time buyer, I would be looking for each and every chance to, to either get into the market or look for ways to get into the market right now. I would get creative 
I would look for co-buying. I would look for joint venture situations, even if it is a property that I'm living in right now. I think people need to get creative. I posted a video on my Instagram channel yesterday specifically about this trend because I'm getting a lot of questions about it again. It came up a lot during the pandemic because people were buying with families. Now I'm getting questions from people who are looking to buy their first home. Hey, can I buy with my friend? Hey, can I buy with my you know, the, uh, mom? Hey, can I buy with this person? What are some creative ways? And I think really comes down, and I don't know if this is a direct answer to your question, but I think it really comes down to being open-minded to different ways to doing it. Listen, um, most listeners, I imagine, are on the West Coast. And if you're not, you're in a major city. Uh, and one of the major cities, they're all quite expensive. And it's not going to change much in the near term, or perhaps in the long term, for that matter. So getting into the market any which way, as long as you do it the right way, is going to be key. And when I mean the right way, I mean get a proper co-buying agreement set up in place or joint venture agreement, depending on the nature of how you talk about it. That's a big mistake I've seen people make recently. Um, intimately know the people that you're buying with. Look for different scenarios. Hopefully working with a mortgage broker who understands that stuff. Yeah, totally. And I think when you look at uh, real estate or some of these prices, it can be a bit daunting, but working with good partners and you know investors and uh, professionals who can advise you into these different unique uh, investment strategies is, is very important. And you touched on you know some of the different asset classes have been cooling off recently. Um, yep. And have you seen some of these price reductions even out the increase in, in payments with these uh, increased rates? Yep, absolutely. So um, market dependent, uh, Taylor, you had mentioned earlier uh, to Austin's question, you had mentioned earlier that you had been hearing feedback that perhaps some markets, they're staying pretty uh, level, right? The comparison to the chart that you showed was sort of mm -hmm. the 1 million to 800,000. Um, yeah. In our conversation, we had Dan Wartell and Ryan Dash, a couple of Vancouver realtors on last week, and they yeah. were seeing on average in, in sort of Metro Vancouver, that nine to 10% price reduction. Yep. Um, so doesn't quite draw to that that two hundred thousand yet, but um, but for for apples to apples, we can use that uh, example here. Let's do it. I mean, I'll give you an example of a um, <clears throat> property. I was talking to a, a very prominent realtor in the uh, Fraser Valley on the weekend, <clears throat> and he was sharing with me a, a sale that he just got for one of his buyers uh, as of Friday that we're now going to be doing the financing for. Uh, a property that uh, the neighbor sold for just over a million dollars uh, back in the height of the market in the February range. And he just acquired the property for them at $780,000. So neighbor, and it's almost a, I mean, obviously it's not an identical unit, but comparative uh, size, comparative uh, garage, comparative, uh, same complex, all that sort of stuff. So, so yes, there is the direct comparable right there that we can see. And in fact, the numbers are even wider than what we were talking about right there. That's why I think it's market dependent. And I think that whenever someone is looking at real estate, that one of the biggest mistakes that people make is it's broad. They make decisions based on broad answers and broad markets. Hey, the market's down. Well, the market's not down everywhere. For example, Langley condos have come down like, I don't know, nothing like, 5% in most situations, like a very small amount up to this date. And in some cases, I've seen some of these condos hold values, and I'm just using that as one example, extremely well to the point that I've seen, we had a client who had multiple offers on their condo just a week ago, like a two-bedroom condo uh, in Langley, like really. Uh, so circling back to your point, I think it's product dependent and location dependent. Um, you can always take averages, but I don't think that's probably the most prudent way to do it. A great example of opportunities, uh, a Chilliwack, uh, we, we do do business out in the Valley and in Vancouver, but I want to use Chilliwack because they're one of the hardest hit markets in all of Canada when it comes to price declines. I had a property sent to me last week. It's a uh, detached home, 16 years old, uh, would have appraised at around $1.1 million back in March uh, and somewhere in that ballpark. 
uh, currently listed, they just dropped the price from 950 to 879 to 835 single family home with a single bedroom basement suite. Now it's not a large lot, but $835,000 and this property is going to rent out for somewhere between $4,000 to $4,200 uh, with the right tenant in place and doesn't need a single thing done to it. Beautiful condition. $835,000 would have sold for 1.1, right? So uh, opportunities are abundant. You just need to know where to look. Uh, in Vancouver, back to your point, it depends on the type of property. But what that says to me about Vancouver, Taylor, is that the Vancouver market is resilient in certain areas and will stay strong over the long term. And perhaps people that have been thinking, you know, waiting for the quote unquote massive crash, you know, we might be waiting a long, long time for that situation. If if eight to 10% is is the average in some markets, with the exception of obviously West, West Van luxury homes, that sort of thing. As real estate investors, we, we focus a lot on, you know, does the property cash flow, how much cash flow does it produce on a monthly basis? Or on the other end of the coin, we're looking at that market growth, the appreciation of the, of the property, focusing on sort of the middle component there of the mortgage pay down with the interest rates at the levels that they are right now. If I'm buying an investment property, putting down say 20, 25%, what sort of return profile are people expecting on just the mortgage paydown component? I feel like that's something that generally gets overlooked a lot from real estate investors. It's focusing on the cash flow or focusing on the appreciation, but how much mortgage is getting paid down each each year? I'd have to pull up an example to give you a specific number as far as how much mortgage paydown was there. But you know, I think what's a good answer to your question would probably be to look at a few things. First and foremost, uh, you are correct. The principal paydown is often neglected, which is why if we're talking to a client, it's one of the first things that we suggest they consider about the property. But I think the second point, and I'll get to your answer in a second here, but the second point is looking at the tenant profile, sorry, not the tenant profile, the investor profile. What is this person hoping to get out of this property? What are they looking for? Um, as we know, Vancouver has brought in a lot of speculators over the past uh, number of years, people that are looking to gain a large return, not necessarily in principal pay down, not necessarily in cash flow, but they just want to win the lottery in appreciation. And obviously that's been hurt in this particular market right now. Um, you know, you've seen your your principal pay down basically halved compared to what we might have seen in um, what was this back in February of 2021 when rates were at 2%, right? I'm trying to pull up a, a quick little scenario if I can, but it might take a second. So I'll have to come back to the specific number because I hate to shoot out uh, not true facts on how much money you're paying off on principal. But let's just say you're essentially cutting down the principal pay down by almost 50% compared to this time last year. In terms of whether or not someone should be looking at cash flow right now, I don't know if that was one of your questions. Yeah. So the the the, the second component to that was: are are you advising your clients now more than ever to find properties that that are cash flow positive? For sure, and it's always easier said than done. Uh, so back to your point. Uh, typically, in a low rate environment, it's very easy to find cash flowing properties. Well, at least until prices got absolutely out of hand in many markets. In a higher rate environment, you have to do a lot more due diligence. And so, I mean, we always talk to our clients about a cash flow versus a non cash flow property. Unfortunately, in let's say the Vancouver market, in order to, to have a cash flowing property, we've typically seen where people have to have either put down a lot of money in cash or purchased a, you know, a midterm, like a furnished rental or a short term rental to have any kind of, you know, cash on cash return, so to speak. Right. 
And those are the two areas where we've seen the quote unquote Vancouver market succeed from that perspective. So I think there's a few things. Yes, I think a lot of people, first of all, if they're coming from assuming this, this is a Western Canada or, or a Vancouver centric podcast here, most people just haven't thought to look outside of their own city, which we talk to people about all the time, like be comfortable with the idea of investing in different cities and different locations. But absolutely, back to my point, when I understand what the goals are of an investor, I do absolutely look at and highlight the fact that they will be, you know, cash flow negative if they purchase this property, or here's some things to consider. So really, at the end of the day, you know, Taylor, one thing that I try to do is I try not to tell people where to invest. I'm your mortgage professional. I'm going to explain to you what the impact is on your personal financial situation. I'm going to provide some suggestions and advice, but it's your decision to find an investment property. Am I going to be looking for a property right now that's not cash flowing? No, because it doesn't necessarily match what I'm looking for, unless it was some kind of exceptional long-term hold, you know, property in situation that I thought I could redevelop or something of that nature. Should other people be looking for cash flow? No doubt. I mean, if you can cash flow in a high rate environment, imagine what you can do in a uh, a lower rate environment with this particular property. The amount of cash flow is probably a little bit more subjective. And I think that's what leads us to looking in different cities and getting a little bit more creative and looking in different locations. But I think that's why I'm excited about this market right now, specifically because we have seen opportunities, even in the Vancouver region, to find cash flow and to look for those types of things. And what are you seeing? You know, this might be another area specific uh, question, but, you know, you talked about condos, townhomes, you know, not seeing a crazy movement in pricing and single detached or more luxury, um, seeing a bit more of a decline. What are you seeing as far as activity wise in those, uh, you know, asset classes, condos, townhomes and single detached? First and foremost, uh, most markets uh, outside of Calgary, for whatever crazy reason, are seeing massive reductions in the amount of sales. Although, although I will say October, November appear to have bounced back a little bit from a really, really quiet summer fall. Um, I am seeing, believe it or not, back to what Taylor had asked, or I think it was you, Taylor, so I apologize, is the first-time buyer market has actually, believe it or not, been successful the last few uh, weeks, at least for my team. Um, we've seen a lot more than usual um, at this time of year, uh, first-time buyers. For example, on Friday, we helped our clients remove subjects on uh, just on files I was working on, not including my team, three particular files that were all first-time buyers, which is not that common. Um, so we are seeing that, that crowd uh, get back in the market right now. In terms of property types, you know, I think it depends on the city. I'm just trying to think through this right now on on different ones that I've seen. And I don't like to use just memory for information and evidence, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, locationally speaking, and we, we we finance properties from Alberta, like we're licensed in Alberta. So we do do Alberta. We do do, you know, the lower mainland Vancouver, Fraser Valley. And we do do a lot in the Okanagan, the island too. So I think it is the nature of the location, which is uh, important to consider. We are seeing a lot more single family homes in those kind of um um, I don't know, I guess second tier cities. So like the Nimos, the uh the, the Chilwacks, um, you know, obviously always we see those in Edmonton single family homes for the most part. We've actually seen a run back with those types of properties, whereas we weren't seeing people able to purchase those throughout most of the spring because it was just too expensive. They couldn't qualify for it. It was a townhouse or a condo, and that was it. Um, in the Vancouver market and in the, I'd say probably, you know, spreading all the way out to Coquitlam to the Langley area, I'm still seeing a lot of people purchasing a lot of strata and particularly condos. Condos are still flying off the shelves right now. And that's been what I've been seeing lately. Uh, the Okanagan would be a good example. The sales ratio of, of, uh, condos is exceptionally high still, um, in certain markets or submarkets, so to speak. Um, and back to your point, it really just comes down to where, what people can qualify for. Like, what can you qualify for? Again, if I can buy a detached home with a suite for 835 grand in Chilliwack, 
and I live and work in Surrey or Langley, perhaps I'm going to make the drive out that way now, whereas that's $250,000 less than I would have paid before and I would have just bought a townhouse, right? Yeah, it gives you an opportunity to sort of jump up into uh, different uh, different products. Um, you know, you're, you're a mortgage broker by trade, but uh, you run a very cool shop in your business there, the Thrive Mortgage Co. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into this whole real estate mortgage broker world and, and uh, tell us about your team and what you've built over there. Thanks, Taylor. I appreciate that. Well, just like uh, probably anybody and everybody you talk to, uh, with very few exceptions, most people fall into mortgage financing on accident. I don't know very many people that literally told me, except for one guy, that he knew he was going to be a, a mortgage. And I talked to a lot of mortgage brokers. Uh, he told me he was going to be because his dad was and he got him into it. and He knew it was going to be that thing. So no, I did not have the intentions of falling into this craft. A friend of mine I played soccer with, actually, speaking of sports, and you guys are big into hockey, but uh, in 2008 or nine, he, uh, it was, I must have been 2009 that he said to me, hey, do you own a house yet? I said, no. He said, great, I'm going to help you buy one. And that was as simple as that. He played soccer with me. Uh, so uh, he helped me get financing on a, a condo back in 2009. I still own that property today, actually. And uh, he just kind of walked me through the process. And then he said, man, you'd be great at this. Like, you should consider jumping into to uh into mortgages um it did take me probably about a year year and a half to commit and truth be told um i didn't really have any success in the field until the mid 2000 uh sorry the mid 2010s so to speak um but uh but yeah that was my first foray and it was really fun to get into uh what i've learned in the industry is that uh people from the outside looking in don't realize that mortgage companies and mortgage brokers can operate exceptionally different and, and very specialized in so many different ways. It's no different than like an engineer. What's an engineer? You got a software engineer, you got an electrical engineer, you got a you know plumbing engineer. It's very specific in how people operate, which is fantastic for clients. But also at the other end, they probably don't know what types of questions to ask or what to look for to make sure that they've got the education. So uh, we uh, Thrive Mortgage Co. is actually myself and two business partners. And we just had the foundation, the mindset when we actually uh, came together in 2019, that financing quite simply could be done much better than it had been. They had experience with a lot of alternative financing, creative process building, and, and making sure that the client's experience was the same exceptional experience every time. We don't like to think of McDonald's. We like to think more of like um, like the Ritz or or Hilton, like a, a good hotel where they do have a good client experience, but it's on a higher level, uh, so to speak. And the biggest gap in the industry, speaking of what we're doing right now, is is education. So when we partnered in 2019, we made a commitment to provide more education to both consumers and the industry as a whole. And to this day, I think we've we've uh, not accomplished our goal, but we began to accomplish our goal. Uh, from a client-centric perspective, our goal is that our clients have not only the communication that they, they deserve, uh, but they're also provided the education either upfront, even before they talk to us, so that they feel so confident working with us that we can provide options to them and recommendations and introductions. We're not here to be order takers. We're here to make suggestions and rec recommend things. And that doesn't work for every person. That's why I think we've done a good job, at least at Thrive, of providing different solutions to our clients, educating on options, uh, and then hand-holding them through the process. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. Great story. Yeah, thanks for sharing a bit more about uh, Thrive there. And yeah, you do a great job on the education and especially uh, today on this podcast. Uh, and you also talked about a few of the uh, investments that you have made. Are they specific to one type of real estate investing? So, you know, my first question is what type of real estate investing do you do? And if you were to see one area of opportunity right now, where would you be looking? Yeah, so I'll go back on this. So I wasn't always interested in real estate as investment, unlike some people. Um, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people. They say, hey, the day I bought my first home, I wanted to invest in real estate. That wasn't necessarily me. I did know one thing. I, I didn't know it was real estate investing at the time. But when my friend helped me buy that property in 2009, he said, you should keep this forever. 
and buy a second one. I didn't realize that, I, I didn't really understand that that was investing. Um, if that hopefully that makes sense. And I think it's important yeah. for people to hear that because a lot of people think that everyone who invests in real estate day one, they understand that. And I, su- I see so much false information in our industry that it drives me mental. So what I try to advise people is like, I'm just like you. I want to learn step by step uh, each and every different part of investing the way that I want to do so, if that makes sense. I don't need to know everything. And I don't profess to know everything. I think that's crazy to do so. Back to answer your question. Uh, residential real estate is what I'm invested in. I'm actively looking to purchase more right now. Um, I am dabbling in development, although this is new to me. So I'm learning a little bit more about it as we go. It's something that's a little bit foreign, so to speak. And from a commercial perspective, we own commercial real estate as well, just units. Um, I haven't uh, had a chance to enjoy looking into you know asset classes like you guys uh, do, such as um, uh, car washes or storage units or anything like that. So I would plead the fifth and say I know very minimal about that. So residential real estate has always been our focus. Specifically, uh, um, um, when I say residential, I should probably be clear on this: is we're not uh, financing you know 25 unit buildings. Although I am working on learning and understanding that at a higher level right now. Most of it has been. Duplexes, uh, single-family homes, um, obviously Burr strategies, uh, condos—you know these types of things. And uh, I guess that answers your question. I'm going on on a rant here, but yeah, no, it definitely, uh, definitely answers it. And uh, we talked about it at the very beginning of the show. I think the listeners, if they're still joining us, uh, is Chewy available for a little uh, sneak peek oh. to, uh, to see the infamous pug there? Absolutely, Chewy's always available. I got to wake him up here, though, guys. Give me Uh-oh. thirty seconds, and I uh, know, I know, he's going to be like a little bit of a pug face. Here we go, Chewy. Come say hi, buddy. Oh, waking him up. <laughs> oh, there he is. You guys better send some uh, doggy treats over here for him. Yeah, today. we will. Thanks, Chewy. Well, Alex, we really, uh, really appreciate you um, joining us today. The insights on, uh, you know, the market areas of opportunity, um, you know, your team at Thrive and, uh, you know, everything about uh, mortgage rates today. Um, you know, you have a great Instagram, um, awesome on social media, YouTube. So if anyone has more questions, um, you can find Alex through that. We'll obviously include his his name in the uh, in the post here. But Alex, really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. And if I could leave one last thing, I'd suggest people pop into that uh, podcast that we have. Uh, we've had a lot of great feedback on that. And uh, hopefully if they're following yours on your YouTube channel or your podcast, that they uh, would uh, give us a subscribe and a follow and, and let us know if they're liking the show. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on.